did you know? But for the past two decades, various laws around the world, most notably Section 230 of the US's Communications Decency Act and the EU's e-commerce directive, have been in place to mostly shield digital intermediaries from liability for illegal content on their platform. Such laws also mean that companies have not been legally obliged to monitor their platforms for infringing content. However, did you know that in response to mounting concern over the years about the misuse of the internet and the exploitation of online platforms for criminal purposes, this has begun to change? And that terrorist content is one of the sectoral arenas where much of this battle is currently being waged? This is Tech Against Terrorism. I'm Jacob Bernstein. And I'm Flora Deverell. In recent years, governments around the world have moved to create laws and regulatory frameworks that seek to combat illegal or even harmful speech online and to hold digital platforms accountable for what is on their platform. In 2017, Germany notably introduced the Netzwerk Durchsetzunggesetz, or NetzDG law, which stated that platforms with more than 2 million users have to remove illegal content within a certain time frame once notified will be heavily fined. Since then, various governments in Europe and around the world, including the UK and Australia, have launched their own proposals geared towards regulating the online sphere. Of course, regulatory approaches vary, with some focusing on setting performance targets for content removal, others holding platforms accountable for having certain procedures and processes in place, and yet others requiring companies to restrict certain forms of speech, even if the speech is not illegal. Terrorist content is often a key focus for this regulatory attention. In 2018, the EU published a draft proposal for an EU-wide regulation on preventing the dissemination of terrorist content online. The regulation remains in the negotiation stage between various EU bodies at this point. However, we know that, amongst other tenets, it will likely introduce a responsibility for proactive measures, as well as a one-hour deadline for companies to remove terrorist content following removal orders from member states. Such laws, including NetsDG and the EU's proposed regulation on online terrorist content, have earned both praise and criticism. Many welcome the laws as well-needed responses to the perceived impunity with which tech platforms have, according to some, inadequately dealt with illegal content online and the associated danger for our societies and democracies. Critics, particularly those among civil society and human rights groups, have raised concerns that they may lead to draconian censorship of the online sphere, with worrying consequences for fundamental rights such as freedom of expression. Regardless, it is clear that what happens in the online counterterrorism legislation space will see effects that go beyond just online terrorist content and is likely to influence online speech more widely. Such state-led online regulation spells the end for the pure self-regulation approach that tech companies have been pushing for years. Whilst all of this has been going on, tech companies have continued to innovate their approaches to self-regulation, endeavouring to prove that they are taking concerns about ethics and accountability seriously. A prominent example is the introduction of Facebook's Oversight Board, announced in 2018 and set to become operational this year. This board is designed to be an independent body that will oversee questions of what content should or should not be on Facebook and Instagram. Another example of self-regulation with regards to counterterrorism is the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, a coalition founded by Facebook, Twitter, Google and Microsoft in 2017. The GIFCT has, together with us, Tech Against Terrorism, worked towards improving industry-wide responses to counterterrorism through a mix of technical and policy-oriented capacity building. In many ways, regulation of the online sphere is coming to a head. Different initiatives continue to be deployed by different sectors, including that of state-led regulation and industry-led initiatives, while specially mandated law enforcement bodies and internet referral units, or IRUs, submit referrals for content takedown to tech companies under their own terms of service. It remains somewhat unclear at this stage how this all fits together. Nevertheless, to help us think through the components and impact of these approaches, we are joined by two very special guests, 
Evelyn Dueck and Daphne Keller. Evelyn is a lecturer on law and SJD candidate at Harvard Law School and affiliated the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, studying international and transnational regulation of online speech. This is a topic that Evelyn and Daphne too frequently writes on for various publications. Daphne is Director of Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. In the past, Daphne has been the Director of Intermediary Liability at Stanford Center for Internet and Society, as well as Associate General Counsel for Google. She's worked on groundbreaking intermediary liability litigation and legislation around the world. Evelyn, Daphne, it is an honour to have you here. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So first of all, as a means of introduction to this debate, it's noteworthy that neither of you are counterterrorism researchers per se. However, both of you, as well as other academics researching online speech, have written extensively about policies and regulations with regard to online terrorist content. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about why you think that terrorist content is such a key focus of a lot of these regulatory debates, or what impact could what happens in this space have on online speech and the internet as a whole? Daphne, would, would you like to start? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think the reason why uh, the, the threat of terrorism is such a driver in this space is is fairly self-evident. I mean, it, it's that it is a tremendously dangerous and, and frightening thing for, for societies that they want to respond to with laws that can cut down on the risk of, of real world violence. And so because we have seen so many horrible episodes of real world violence um, coming from extremists over the past years, um, it is, it's not surprising that that has been a huge pressure point in the law regulating content on platforms. Absolutely, and uh, Evelyn? Yeah, just to, to echo all of that, obviously um, it's been an immense area of, of public and regulatory focus um, in, in particular because of a few very high profile um, issues. And I guess one of the reasons why I've written about it specifically in my work, and thank you for noting up front that I'm not a counterterrorism researcher, I think that's important for the rest of this conversation, um, is that, you know, it, it is an area where it's one of the early spaces where platforms really were pressured to step up and take more responsibility for the content that appeared on their websites. Um, and then sort of that then becomes a model or an example when we start talking about what they should do in other areas. And, you know, I, I would add, it's been interesting to see, at least in the part of the debate that I've seen around the terrorist content regulation, just how little um, the work of real security researchers is, is being cited. Um, you know, I think there is an easy assumption that we make that if horrific content weren't online, or if recruitment content weren't online, that would correlate to a decline in real world violence. But, you know, from what I was able to find digging into the work by real security researchers, which again, you know, that's not me, there's actually a whole lot of debate about this and, and a lot of questions about whether by taking things off of mainstream platforms, we drive people in more into echo chambers or make it harder for um, law enforcement to see what's going on and go after offline crime and, and violence. And, and so th there's a really important evidentiary piece here that I think can get glossed over too easily in the rush to get rid of um, violent, offensive, and you know, often, frankly, illegal content online. The, the connection to real world violence remains really complicated. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's also something that we stress at Take Against Terrorism uh, often that, you know, there is uh, a debate over the sort of uh, uh, causality between viewing content and, you know, committing a violent act of terror. And, and also very happy that you mentioned the um, 
the notion of content removal and what what sort of unintended consequences uh, that might have in terms of displacing the threats across to other parts of the tech ecosystem. But uh, moving on, so obviously a number of national laws aiming to curb the spread of, amongst other things, online terrorist content are already in place, for example, in Germany and Australia. However, one law or regulation that will certainly have particular impact is the proposed uh, regulation on online terrorist content currently prepared by the EU. Daphne, if I could just ask you to sort of explain exactly what this law is about and what potential impact do you see it having? Sure. So this law so far exists in three drafts from the Commission, Council and Parliament in the EU, and it is in trilogue negotiations right now to reconcile the three. So there's some difference between the two, and I'm kind of going to blur them together. But it's worth noting in particular, the Parliament draft really, in my mind, is is much better than the others and, and has a lot of important protections in it. Some key questions in the law are, first of all, what the definition of prohibited terrorist content is going to be. Obviously, that's very fraught. And also how uh, European law and platforms should handle conflicts in those definitions from one EU member state to another, from Spain versus Hungary, for example. Then the, the parts that I think are more squarely on point for the work that Evelyn and I do have to do with empowering national authorities to tell platforms to take things down. And these national authorities might, in the sort of um, worst case scenario or least um, civil liberties protective scenario, they might just be local police. Um, they are not probably going to be courts. You know, they're going to be something something faster and with less process than that. And they can do two things. One, they can decide that content is illegal and order a platform to take it down. Um, which might have to happen as quickly as in one hour, uh, even for very small platforms and platforms that don't have an EU presence. They can also refer content for removal without deciding that it violates the law on the basis instead that it violates a platform terms of service. And this is very similar to what internet referral units do now. I know we'll talk about that in a minute. So in that case, there's sort of um, a, a government actor, you know, police or whoever it turns out to be applying not the law, but instead standards created by platforms to tell them to take down content that, that might actually be legal. We've got some troubling examples, for example, of uh, law enforcement telling the Internet Archive to take down a bunch of things that turned out actually to be parodies or actually completely innocuous material in some cases. And then finally, these once an um, authority has issued an order to take something down, it can follow up by telling a platform that it has to build a proactive monitoring effort. So it has to apply a, a filter to keep content down in the future. And that is the piece that has been the focus of a particularly large amount of opposition from civil society in Europe. It's been critiqued by three different human rights rapporteurs from the United Nations. There's been a lot of concerns about mandatory filtering leading to disparate impact for different groups based on their nationality or religion. So there's been a ton of focus around the filtering piece. Drawing on Daphne's previous writing in this space and the work of many others, you know, Daniel Citron and Seth Creamer and things, the problem with that kind of scenario is obviously if you're a platform, the incentive structure that it creates um, is when you get this kind of notice or, or pressure from a government, your incentive is to take it down. And so the real concern there is that the individual speech uh, interests that are at stake aren't going to get a proper hearing. 
Yeah, that, that's really good. And uh, I mean, one concern that we have had is, for example, the one hour removal uh, deadline, given that a lot of the smaller companies that we work with might struggle with that, given that, you know, they might be run by one person. So what happens when, you know, they're asleep? Literally, that, that could be sort of a very practical challenge for for this specific piece of legislation. Daphne, you mentioned uh, internet referral units uh, earlier. What are they and what impact do they have in this space? These are pre-existing entities. And honestly, you, you might know more about them than I do. So you know, please correct me if I'm missing anything here. But you know, they exist within, for example, the London Metropolitan Police um, and within Europol. They're basically um, employees of law enforcement whose job is to look for online content and then request platforms to take it down, again, not based on it violating the law, but based on it violating the platform's terms of service. And there are some really interesting legal questions, you know, what in the US would be constitutional questions about that mechanism. You know, for example, in, in the UK, there was a human rights audit of uh, an analogous um, system for child sexual abuse material, the Internet Watch Foundation effort where the the human rights auditor said, look, if police want content taken down, they have to go through a court under UK law, but by the police referring something in a way that's not based on law and that kind of passes it through a private actor based on some other standard, it's avoiding um, a legal process that would otherwise apply. So th there's been a lot of concern from, from civil society about these internet referral units for that reason. And also just more broadly, because you can think of it as a big systemic shift in authority to regulate speech from saying it's democracies and governments and elected officials and courts that decide what's illegal, which is sort of how things have been for a very long time um, under the rule of law, to saying, well, no, that stuff doesn't matter so much. The rules that matter are the ones created by private platforms, and we're going to deploy government officials to enforce those rules. Yeah, and just something that I want to emphasize about sort of the pieces that we're talking about here um, is we can talk about these sort of regulations or initiatives in isolation, but it's important to emphasize how they are sort of all interrelated. Uh, Jacob, you mentioned the Australian uh, regulation earlier, and then these pre-existing examples of the uh, IRUs and the child sexual abuse material databases, um, they all sort of are informing the conversations that we're having now about what to do next and often are held up as examples. Of, of what to do next. So that kind of history, it, it really is more of a trend rather than just sort of discussing the current EU regulation in isolation. And just building on what both of you said, I'm particularly interested in something um, I saw you say, Daphne, which I thought described it quite well as this being a Faustian bargain, i.e. we ask platforms to take down that which is so-called awful but lawful instead of instead of developing speech laws. And that means that we at the same time are relinquishing our constraints on platforms power in the same way that we might have rights-based constraint over, over government's power. And I was wondering if you could, I mean, you've touched on it earlier, but if you could explain uh, what you meant by the rule of terms of service, which I think you were talking about in relation to uh, the proposed EU regulation. So, so what do you mean by the rule of TOS, and and why is this, in your view, a reason for concern? Sure. Well, I mean, the the starting point is that platforms, and I'm I'm thinking of you know big popular platforms like YouTube or Facebook here, but platforms use their terms of service to prohibit a lot of speech that is protected by law, certainly in the US with its broad First Amendment protections, but really many places in the world. And that's because that's what 
their users want for the most part. You know, most people don't want to go onto a platform and be confronted by barely legal images of violence or threats or bullying or, or racism. You know, like there's there's a real commercial reason um, and consumer demand reason that, that platforms do this. But that also turns the terms of service into this incredible power, incredibly powerful mechanism for deciding what what speech can be online and makes it easy for governments to say, well, you know, let's just leverage that, which we've seen in, in the case of IRUs. And I, I don't know how we get out of that bargain, really, you know, <laughs> because I, I don't think very many people would seriously propose that every platform should have to carry every legal piece of speech that would turn them into cesspools and drive users away. And, and so I think it's unavoidable that there's private power being used to constrain lawful speech. And we just need to really think harder about how that intersects with government power, how that intersects with competition and consumer choice, uh, what role uh, the organizations that Evelyn has written about as content cartels play in this, uh, what value transparency might have in, in correcting for this, um, because it's just, it, it, it's very complicated and there's not a single clear way forward. But sort of leading up to this, uh, the the question of self-regulation and the sort of standards that companies set for themselves in this space. So I think for many people, it's it's very clear what you know government-led regulation is in this space. Uh, but what exactly does self-regulation mean in regards to uh, regulating online terrorist content? Yeah. So as um, as Daphne was just saying, you know, often platforms' terms of service really are where a lot of this occurs, uh, and a lot of um, a lot of the regulation and most important decisions get made about what stays up and, and comes down. So over the years, platforms have been developing ever more uh, intricate and um, detailed, well, the major platforms at least, um, intricate and detailed rule books around what they will take down and, and leave up. Um, and then also expanding slowly uh, on the transparency measures around how they enforce those rules. Uh, but really, it is still um, very, very opaque. Uh, and there's sort of not a lot of visibility into exactly what's occurring or the accuracy of the figures that they release um, and, and things like that. So that really is uh, the big area for improvement in, in self-regulation at the moment. So as we're recording this on the 13th of May, Evelyn, uh, last week, there was big news for those of us monitoring this debate, and that was that Facebook announced its 21st members for its uh, new oversight board. Evelyn and Daphne as well, um, you've written extensively on this board uh, based on the charters that Facebook has, has published on to this date. Evelyn, could you tell us a little bit more to start off with about this oversight board, what it is, what impact it will have, and how significant it is that a company like Facebook is, is pursuing this model in this overarching regulatory debate? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It was an exciting moment um, as someone that's been tracking it for you know the last 18 months or two years. When I was sort of starting to, to focus uh, on this, I heard a story about um, physicists that were doing dissertations on the Large Hadron Collider, and then their PhDs were put on hold when the thing broke down for two years and, and over the past two years I've kind of felt like that with the oversight board so it was exciting <laughs> uh, to see it finally sort of have faces and names and things uh, and look like a real institution. So the idea I mean it, characterizing what this thing is is tricky. It sort of looks like a court and the idea will be that it will hear appeals from Facebook's content moderation decisions um, and can overrule them but it can also issue policy recommendations. Um, it won't have binding authority except in the 
individual case before it. And so, you know, the question obviously is going to be how much more broadly will Facebook implement that across the platform. Um, But really, the focus of this thing is exactly what Daphne was talking about earlier, is that terms of service are becoming so important in this space, and in many cases, much more important than government rules and laws. Um, And so we really have this problem where these extremely important speech regulations are being promulgated by these private unaccountable companies and probably governed by business imperatives rather than any sort of democratic or legitimate um, or rights-based incentives or or values. And so the hope is that this body, um, by checking Facebook's decisions, uh, will be able to inject some of those values back into the way that content moderation occurs on Facebook, or at the very least, provide more transparency. Yeah, and but it, it, it's interesting because it, it, the remit, once uh, thought to be broader, will only focus on um, content removed, I think I'm, I'm correct in saying. And obviously, uh, the oversight board will only be able to get to so many cases per year, and it will be individual pieces of content, um, even though it will have parallels, of course, across across the whole platform, potentially. But what do you think about, about this focus in terms of the remit? Yeah, so that really is the biggest disappointment to me over the past 18 months of the board's development. Um, Its jurisdiction or its sort of mandate has been steadily narrowed over time. So, you know, we were promised this Supreme Court of Facebook and then sort of over time it's gotten smaller and smaller and now it's maybe looking more like a local district court or something along those lines or, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles. So I'm really hopeful that uh, if we keep the pressure up that Facebook will uh, eventually expand the scope. They tell me that it's coming. You know, they've publicly said that uh, they do want to expand the scope to especially um, leave up decisions because often those are some of the most controversial. Um, so, you know, that's that's yet to be seen. But I really do think that it's important if this experiment is going to work, that it has uh, input over and oversight over really the the most important content moderation decisions that Facebook makes and not just, you know, some matters off to the periphery of the of the core business model. I should just say, I should just clarify, um, all of those matters could come before the board from startup as long as Facebook decides to refer it to the board. Um, but that's obviously not a really strong model of um, oversight if it is up to Facebook when leave up decisions come before the board. Do you have anything that you would like to highlight on on this topic, Daphne? Well, I would say first that the super duper experts on the board are Evelyn. Like we're so lucky to have her here to talk about that, and and a U.S. academic named Kate Klonick, and they just know it inside and out in in a way that the rest of us can't can't compare to. But but I've thought about it a lot. It just sort of systemically the the role that it plays. And, you know, I wrote in the Atlantic about how this is not really a Supreme Court. It's not a real constraint. It's not the kind of uh, democratic or rights-based limit on power that that we think of when we hear phrases like Supreme Court, and that's part of the Faustian bargain. At the same time, I'm I'm excited about it. You know, this is a a bold experiment, and it's an attempt to, to solve this problem where nobody really wants Facebook making these hard calls about our speech, but nobody really wants governments doing it either, even if we, you know, could reconcile what all the different governments want. And and so it's an, an attempt at a, a different way forward. Um, and I do think that Facebook has incentive to make the board pretty independent, you know, to make it not too powerful, <laughs> not give it too many things it can decide, but make it pretty independent um, for the things it does decide. Because for Facebook, this is a 
wonderful opportunity to finally pass the buck and take the hard decisions where everybody's going to be mad no matter what they do, pass them to a third party and then say, don't blame us. You know, the board, the board decides. So it will be really interesting to, to see where this, this goes, um, even though its impact is not nearly as broad as I think a lot of people expect. As someone that has been in the hot seat and, you know, worked on these issues from the inside, um, I wonder whether you would have really appreciated having something like the Oversight Board uh, there to sort of offload some of the more difficult questions to. Sure. I mean, as as long as it's a, a question that has, you know, that's entirely discretionary to the platform, um, it, it gets much more complicated for questions where there's some country saying, hey, you know, Russia saying, hey, our law requires you to take down this um, pro-LGBTQ content, you know, and in the the bylaws for the board, my understanding is Facebook says, well, if there's a legal obligation, then the board doesn't get to decide. So there's this whole category of really difficult human rights questions where there actually is a government claiming there's a reason something has to come down. Um, and uh, if Facebook interprets those as legal questions rather than terms of service questions, then then they don't go to the board. Um, there's also, and Nicole Wong raised this um, on the uh, in lieu of fun webcast, which Evelyn and I were both on last week, you know, the really interesting cases will be ones where Facebook's business imperative conflicts with what the board wants them to do. You know, maybe Facebook wants to go into Malaysia as a market. I'm not sure if they're already in Malaysia, but, you know, um, and to appease the government or, or to be popular with, with users there, they'd like to take something down. So there's money on the line um, in setting policy a certain way, but the board tells them not to. Um, those will be the really interesting decisions where there's more of a potential actual conflict between Facebook and the board. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you emphasize that first point as well about um, the fact that the board explicitly will not be considering content that Facebook is taking down under local law, because that's obviously going to be um, relevant to the audience of this podcast, because um, for many uh, terrorist and content questions, um, that's going to be a legal question. And the Oversight Board won't have oversight over that. And it certainly also won't have oversight over Facebook's determination that it is a legal question. And that also itself is not necessarily an easy call. Um, we saw this in the uh, Soleimani, um, when there was the assassination, there was this sort of dispute around Instagram's decision to take down posts um, expressing support for the assassination, uh, which it originally said it had done under US sanction laws. Uh, and then they sort of reneged and, and backtracked uh, on that. And those kinds of questions are not things that the um, that the oversight board will be talking about. So there's still a lot of accountability and, and transparency work that needs to be done uh, in this space that is just not what the oversight board is doing. You know, there's actually, there's another, that makes me think of another interesting intersection with law, which is, you know, as a platform, you can be in a situation where there's some government saying, hey, I have jurisdiction over you and my law says you have to take this down. And you want to maintain the position like, no, you don't. You don't have jurisdiction over me because I, you know, I don't have people or assets on the ground in your country or whatever, or your law does not require this. I, I disagree with your interpretation. But if you don't want to get in a big public fight about those things, the easiest thing to do is say, but my terms of service require me to take this down anyway. So I'm not acknowledging your power, government, but I am going to take it down. 
Um, and that's, for example, what was the upshot of the famous Yahoo France case back in the 2000s was that Yahoo um, denied that France had power to make them take down Nazi paraphernalia, but then uh, decided to do it voluntarily anyway under their terms of service and the case went away. Um, so the board in a way takes away that out that platforms have because if, if, if this question goes to the board and the board's like, nope, your terms of service don't require you to take this down, then suddenly that legal conflict that had been avoided becomes very um, sharp and pointy again. I just want to add that that scenario that Daphne described where a platform, you know, sort of gets pressure or receives an order from a government um, and doesn't want to sort of concede power, but then takes it down under its terms of service. And then the board steps in and says, no, you need to change your terms of service or this isn't in violation of your terms of service. That's actually a positive case for the oversight board, because then that gets kicked back to the government and we have the proper sort of democratic discussion about whether this is illegal content and whether it is something that should be taken down. In that case, the the actor that gets held accountable uh, is the government, which is, you know, often where this kind of accountability should, um, should fall. And so that is a positive uh, case for having something like the Oversight Board being injected into this system. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Evelyn. And, you know, you and I were in a Twitter back and forth with some people about whether, some law professors, about whether it would be appropriate for legal clinics to use law student labor to bring cases before the board. And I think a lot of people's response was no, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not going to defer to the Facebook rules and structure our legal clinics around it. But I think in, in a case like this one, like what you just described, where it's really teeing up a question about state power, um, that might be an interesting and legitimate use of clinic resources. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I think it is far too early to be discussing uh, clinics for the oversight board. I just want to see it here, a case first, um, and then we can sort of think about uh, the next steps. So going back to self-regulation in, in the sort of counter-terrorism space, um, or the online counter-terrorism space more, more broadly, um, so obviously... At Tech Against Terrorism, we work closely with bodies like the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism or the GIFCT, which is uh, perhaps the most significant industry body uh, for self-regulation of terrorist content. Uh, we also support uh, the wider tech industry in, in improving their capacity to respond. So, and that includes uh, things like terms of service, which we've discussed at length already. So we, we definitely think that this is you know, a, a good approach. So... However, this, of course, does not mean that industry-wide self-regulatory approaches are without their challenges or that uh, self-regulation should be the only answer going forward. And Evelyn, this, this brings me to a piece that you've uh, written about some of these challenges called the rise of the content cartels. If I could just ask you, what, what do you mean by the term content cartel and why are they, in your view, potentially problematic? I am really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about this because I personally think it's one of the most difficult issues in content moderation and something that we don't necessarily talk about enough, which is, you know, when do we want cooperation and collaboration across the industry? And sort of when do we want the idea of like multiple marketplaces of ideas competing um, to sort of uh, have more diversity online? So what I mean by content cartels is arrangements between platforms and sometimes governments uh, to work together to remove content or actors uh, from their services and without adequate oversight. Um, and that's why I use the phrase content cartels, um, because I do think that there are good cases to be made for, you know, collaboration in certain uh, contexts. Uh, but it's really the lack of adequate oversight that to me makes these arrangements pernicious uh, in the current forms that they're occurring. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess one thing I would say uh, on on this issue is that from our experience with uh, of working in this space, I guess you could you could to some extent make the argument that uh, a lot of governments has allowed quote unquote allowed industry bodies like the GIFCT to to take the lead on this issue. So one of the examples I would raise here is the the issue of definitions and standard setting of the term terrorist content. So whilst the international community to some extent has failed to provide clarity on this term and you know on the on the terrorism concept more widely, it is understandable that the companies working across a myriad of jurisdictions see it as preferable to build consensus across the tech industry to help tackle this threat across their platforms. So I guess in, in that sense, you could argue that models such as the GIFCT or other industry approaches, uh, whilst acknowledging that there is room for improvement, of course, is the best current alternative. So I'm, I'm curious, Evelyn, to hear your thoughts on, on that specifically, and in, or if there are other, other realistic models uh, that you might see as, as preferable. No, I definitely uh, I have some sympathy with that argument. I mean, I think, you know, in certain areas, if you want a standard for what content is available online, uh, then you want a standard and you don't want, you want that to apply uniformly. Um, I think also there's a really, you know, one of the biggest cases to be made for these kinds of institutions is um, the help that it can give to smaller platforms in particular. So a lot of this kind of content moderation can be extremely tech or resource intensive. Uh, and if you then set standards um, that you expect platforms to comply with, you know, smaller platforms aren't going to have a chance of developing the kind of technology that the big platforms have um, to enact those standards across the platforms. And so, you know, it, it really is a, a matter of forcing bigger platforms to help the smaller platforms it's it's pro-competitive you know in a way so i definitely um i have a lot of, of sympathy with a lot of those arguments uh really my concerns are around um the lack of transparency and accountability with the way that these are happening at the moment we don't really have as much visibility as we need over what exactly the definitions are that are, are, are being applied we also don't have uh, a lot of transparency around you know who is making these decisions so if you have these collaborative arrangements uh, and it looks like individual platforms are all sort of making their decisions uh, for themselves, but in actual fact, what it is, is it's a few big platforms and, you know, therefore a few individuals within these big platforms who are taking decisions for the rest of the internet or whoever else is in uh, these arrangements. I, I, I consider that sort of quite problematic. So, I mean, you know, I wrote this paper and I tried to carve out a, a middle path uh, and I got slammed from all sides on this. I do want to say that, you know, there are people who think that we need much more collaboration. Otherwise, you know, the internet is doomed and there's, this is never going to work. And then there are people who think that collaboration is always going to be a, th a threat to civil liberties and there's just no way that this can ever be legitimated. So I, I think it's a really, I, I don't think it means I'm necessarily doing everything, anything right, um, that so many people disagree with me, but I do think it means that it's a conversation we need to be having much more. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think it, it is a really valuable uh, contribution. And even, you know, for, for us at Tech Against Terrorism, our work to sort of sort of really consider what we're doing uh, and really have, have these these issues in mind as, as we go forward, trying to sort of encourage better uh, self-regulation in the industry on, on this issue. Um, so I, I think it was a great contribution to the debate. So I think it's, it's really good that we can discuss discuss it at length here. Daphne, is there anything you would you would like to add? Yeah, well, first I'll add that everyone should read Evelyn's paper because it's fabulous. It's really, really good. Um, and it tees up a bunch of issues that just have not been discussed enough. And then beyond that, you know, I would say, I, I think it's useful to think about 
in terms of content cartels or you know centralized um, databases for filtering or coordination across different platforms, it, it's important to think differently about different kinds of content. So if there's content that is 100% illegal every single time, regardless of context, um, such as child sexual abuse material, which is never going to be legal in you know, news reporting or whatever the exceptions are in other cases, that's the strongest case for coordination. And I think you know, almost everyone recognizes that as, as the strongest case. And then if there's content that is illegal sometimes, but legal other times, depending on the context in which it appears, like a clip from an ISIS video that is material support of terrorism under US law in one context, but is used for news reporting or research in another, you know, that gets incrementally harder. And that's, I know, uh, uh, something, Jacob and Flora, that you, you deal with every day. And then another step down from there is content that really isn't illegal, but that lots and lots of platforms prohibit. And it's a real waste if they're all replicating the resources to assess it. You know, if there is, they all need to hire an Arabic speaker and a Chechen speaker and a French speaker and a Japanese speaker to assess the same piece of content, it would be very nice for smaller and resource poor platforms you know, to not have to do that and to have a way that they can share information. But the information they share can't be this binary bit that says leave it up or take it down. It has to be something much more granular that, you know, tees it up for review under the diverse speech policies of the different platforms. That That's a very hard thing to build. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think sort of disaggregating the kinds of content is really important here um, because that's part of the story that I tell in this paper and that I was getting to earlier when I was mentioning the trends um, it, that we see in regulation because this is a this is a story of a trend right it started in the context of uh, child sexual abuse material and as Daphne said that's a reasonably easy case um, to make for the importance of collaboration um, and then that the success you know, success in quotation marks of that model got invoked in um, the creation of the GIFT CT and the idea of that model being used. Um, and now we see platforms talking about the success of the child sexual abuse material and the GIFT CT model as being used to justify the creation of a similar kind of thing uh, in other areas. And, you know, you hear it in conversations around like coordinated inauthentic behavior, um, which I take to mean some sort of disinformation campaign um, and sort of things like deep fakes and things like that. And so it, it really is a trend and we're sort of heading to, towards this future. The, the alarm that I wanted to raise is we're sort of seeing this expand. You know, Daniel Citron has memorably uh, coined the term censorship creep for the use of a tool in one context being moved to another context. And I'm sort of expanding that on that idea to talk about content cartel creep, uh, where we're just sort of seeing this model go into more and more spaces without necessarily fixing up the problems with it uh, in, in the institutions that we already have. I will make another plug for a point Evelyn touched on briefly before, which is the importance of transparency. I mean, right now, literally no one in the world, including the GIFCT members, you know, knows what all the pieces of content are that are represented by the hashes in the database. And that means no one is able to double check and see if there are mistakes made in things being added 
to the database in the first place, you know, something going in that is lawful and important speech, um, but that's getting taken down in an automated fashion, which many people think happened with the Syrian archive, for example, which had this huge collection of videos documenting human rights abuses in Syria taken down off of YouTube. There's, there's nobody who can check and see if that's happening. There's nobody who can check and see if there is bias or disparate impact based on people's language or religion or regional background, et cetera, in, in what winds up in the database. And, and that's that's a really big problem. We, you know, we just can't assess whether this is a good tool that should be a basis for future models or a terribly broken tool, or as I'm sure is really the case, somewhere in between with lots of complicated pros and cons that we should understand before we can build on it. But until people can, you know, researchers can see the actual content reflected in the database and not just the statistics that platforms report, there's no way for anybody to reach an informed opinion about that. On that note, the GIFCT is, is currently preparing for a new independent structure. So that will include a, an indiv- independent advisory committee, as well as uh, a range of working groups across different topics. Uh, and spoiler alert, we will lead one of, the, one of the working groups, one on technical approaches. So that should be exciting. So moving on, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, suggested that the international human rights framework should act as the basis for online content moderation. So indeed, he actually made this recommendation for Facebook's oversight board in a, in a letter to Mark Zuckerberg. What is your view on this suggested approach? Or what other principles do you think should guide online content moderation, including of terrorist content? So I I argue with David about this a fair amount. (laughs) I think international human rights law is a great framework. And what makes it great is not the substance of the law, but rather the fact that it is something a bunch of countries have already agreed on. It's the only thing we have that um, you know, that has that transnational legitimacy. So it's incredibly important. Um, And I think when it comes to content moderation, it's really useful as a way to think about what process companies should abide by. You know, do they owe users appeals? How clear and transparent should they be in explaining their rules in their terms of service or community guidelines, things like that. Um, but, But beyond that, I think there's a lot of expectation out there that international human rights law will be useful to set the substance of the rules. You know, if there's a a takedown involving nude image, how do you balance, you know, child protection against free expression? Or how do you balance um, a partially public figure's privacy rights or rights to dignity against the speech rights of somebody who's crudely criticizing them? There are all these really hard substantive questions and the answer in international human rights law is often that there are an array of potentially correct answers. You know, the answer that France would reach about the right to be forgotten is okay. And the answer that the U.S. would reach about the right to be forgotten is also okay. There's this latitude for different interpretations. And I think, you know, in the case of Facebook, for the most part, the takedown decisions that they're making already fall somewhere within that latitude So adding international human rights doesn't dictate clearer answers than the ones we're getting now. Yeah, I just want to sort of agree with everything that Daphne just said. I have such enormous respect for David Kay, and I think he is one of the most important thinkers and writers in this space. Uh, And I'm a huge fan of international law. You know, I have a sympathetic critique of this proposal. I'm not rejecting it because it's international law, and that's not where I'm coming from. But I do really think that we need to have a conversation around the fact that it's not going to answer specific questions. And, you know, I can imagine sort of Daphne sitting there with these questions as an in-house lawyer and 
and looking to international human rights law and, and not being able to get an answer from it because um, the substance of the law often is is not going to be um, specific enough and also you know and this was something that one of the international human rights law experts that's just been appointed to the Facebook oversight board was was talking about last week um, saying you know international human rights law they're universal norms, but they have to take into account context. And so really they only get you so far because then you need to answer the question still uh, within the specific context. And the other thing is that the online world is kind of just a bit of a different beast and it's throwing up all these new questions that we just haven't really encountered before. Um, and it's so fast moving and it's going to be dependent not only on the country context, but on the platform context uh, of the particular moment and also on the implementation capacity of a particular platform and you know the the way that the decision could be carried out in practice because I think that that's a kind of a really important factor that needs to go into policy development uh, and I just don't think that international human rights law uh, jurisprudence at moment at the moment really speaks to those issues so are there any regulatory approaches or areas of focus or tenets that you think will become increasingly prominent or that we should uh, watch this space for, so to speak? So perhaps transparency or, or definitional thresholds or, or algorithm amplification, content moderation targets, that, that type of thing. Is there, is there anything that you would like to particularly highlight coming out of this? Well, sure. All of those things. I mean, the sort of every arc of new internet regulation or legal disputes so far has sort of had the front runners of copyright, pornography, and sometimes terrorism. And so we've seen a lot of legal action, especially in the EU, um, around um, the copyright and terrorism in, in particular. So that, you know, that's not very surprising. Then we have a batch of things that are sort of products of the very strange times we live in now, which are like questions about disinformation, political disinformation, health disinformation. And those are incredibly difficult because often the content that's at issue there is not actually illegal. You know, it's harmful, but lawful. And so figuring out what, if anything, lawmakers can or should try to compel platforms to do there um, is 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 a huge question and something, for example, that the UK wrestled with in the UK Online Harms White Paper. Um, then, as as you mentioned, you know, there's increasing interest in regulating algorithms and regulating amplification. I think the nuts and bolts of that are much more complicated than than people appreciate, mm -hmm. both because there are very competing values we might be pursuing through this regulation. You know, if we're pursuing the value of um, uh, truthful news sources first, that might be intention with pursuing the value of having a diversity of sources and perspectives. And that in turn might be intention with prioritizing ranking based on competition concerns or prioritizing them based on copyright concerns. So, you know, there's just, even what the goals are, are hard to define. Um, and then the the mechanics of it, you know, the number of engineers that a regulator would have to hire to understand, keep abreast of, and enforce rules about the algorithms for, for all of these platforms is kind of mind-boggling. Um, but that's definitely a big area of focus. People also talk about regulating artificial intelligence, and very often they just mean regulating algorithms. So I, I would put that in, in the same bucket. And then the, the last point, which I really hope is a focus of, of more regulation going forward, is transparency. You know, in, in the terrorist content regulation, the parliament draft had the best 
transparency provisions that I've seen, I think, in any law, including requirements for the government to issue transparency reports about what they're doing, you know, how many of the takedown requests correlated to subsequent investigations and prosecutions, how many of the takedown requests turned out to be mistaken, not requests, orders, how many of the takedown orders correlated to real world enforcement or turned out to have problems later on. I hope that we will see real progress in transparency requirements, both for platforms and for um, governments and other actors in this space. Yeah, I just want to echo Daphne's all of the above comment, because I really think we're sort of sitting at this pivotal moment uh, where in the next five to ten years we're going to see a lot of experimentation um, from different countries and different platforms, and I think we're going to see sort of some, some pretty radical transformations in this space. You know, there was sort of conversation a month or so ago about whether, you know, the tech clash was over because of the pandemic and how reliant we were on platforms and how they were doing a good job, and I did not buy that for a second. Um, I think the tech clash is very much still here and going to be happening. Um, and so I think that it's just going to be a hugely uh, important decade for um, online speech regulation. And I just can't finish anywhere else except to echo Daphne's call for transparency. And, and I really hope that that's a pivotal uh, part of every uh, proposal that comes out. Evelyn, Daphne, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for this podcast episode. Thank you again to Evelyn Dueck and Daphne Keller for leading us through this very complex but important subject. In the description, we have collected some of the articles mentioned throughout the episode that Evelyn and Daphne have written on this topic. So we recommend that you check them out. To listen to our other podcasts, please visit techagainstterrorism.fm. To read more about our work in supporting the global tech sector in tackling terrorist use of the internet, visit our website at techagainstterrorism.org and follow us on Twitter at techvsterrorism. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.